by show of hands, how many here are morally opposed to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Now, how many of you are actually on the correct side of, um, of the issue where you said Christmas before Thanksgiving is the only time? We are clearly in the minority. Um, anyhow. Uh, I'm just reminded that we're going into the holiday season. I was sitting in Panera Bread on Tuesday, which happened to be November 1st, when I started to notice the Christmas music was turned on. And of all, I'm a proponent of Christmas music this early, but of all of them, the songs out there, you know which one they decide to play? It's beginning to look a lot. Just save that one. Like, we're going to save that one. But nonetheless, wherever we go, this holiday season, we're starting to see walk through Walmart or Home Depot, right? It looks like a Christmas tree farm, um, half, of the, half of the store. But here we are. Um, here we are heading into Thanksgiving and into the holiday season. So as we begin to turn our mind to the book of Esther this morning, last week, we heard and we read about how Esther and Mordecai and the Jews at large had a huge holiday celebration, right? How they finally won the mastery or won the victory over their enemies. And they celebrated with a big old holiday, and rightly so. So if you turn with me to Esther chapter 9 and verse 20, as we conclude our roughly two-month journey through this book. Um, we'll start in Esther chapter 9, um, verse 20. The highs have been high, haven't they? And the lows have been low. So let's read. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. Now let's pause here. Verse 22 kind of sums it up well, doesn't it? It says, a day and a month that had been turned from sorrow into gladness. From mourning into a holiday. Right? The, the mourning and the sorrow that their entire nation was about to be destroyed in the biggest empire on the planet. Right, in that empire that happened to include Israel itself or the Holy Land. Right, that these people were going to be wiped off the face of the planet. But that sorrow, as we just read, was turned into gladness. Because were they killed? Were they wiped off the face of the planet? Not one bit. With, we read last week, the text said, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred, and the Jews, through the interceding work of Esther and through Mordecai, were given the right to fight back, and they were saved. 
And that day, which was originally a day of mourning, was then turned into a holiday. And that brings us to verse 23. Let's read it. Verse 23 says, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. It says, they accepted what they started to do. You know, they didn't need someone like Mordecai to say, you have to do this, right? They were compelled. We read about that in chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. They were compelled. This was a spontaneous holiday. It was a spontaneous holiday because of their overwhelming joy. Now let's review, and the, the text helps us. In verse 24, let's keep reading. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. Now this Haman guy, right, you will remember that he's a really, really, really bad guy. And it's often here it's recorded that not just a bad guy, but he has that phrase, the enemy of the Jews, after his name pretty frequently throughout this book of Esther. And some of you will now appreciate how that phrase, Haman the Agagite, his lineage, how much that brings to the story, right? how it brings not just, um, it's, it's not this, uh, the Agagite, like making it hard for us to read Haman's name in Sunday school classes, right? It's far more, it's, it helps us see the lineage of this man and how it's tethered and how this hatred is tethered to an undergirding story. How this is really an ancient animosity between Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the Jew. And some of you are now really starting to appreciate that and reading our Bibles with a little bit more note of the finer details, right? If, um, if you missed out on that sermon, uh, you can go back. It's the second one, the second installment in this series, um, and you can do that on, on the church website. But the, the writer is recalling to our minds how Haman— because he couldn't stand, he couldn't stomach this guy Mordecai, sentences not only Mordecai to die, but all of the Jews. And verse 24 tells us how Haman goes about it. Right? What is verse 24? Now catch this, this is really important. We're, we're going to come back to this later. But it says that in verse 24, they cast poor. That is, lots. So they cast lots to decide the day to crush and to destroy the Jews. Now, casting lots, it can, it's kind of like drawing straws or rolling dice or flipping a coin. It's like leaving it up to chance. And I kind of picture, this, I don't know if this is what happened, but I picture one of those dark, smoky rooms late at night, you know, and the guys are standing around and they're like, well, when should we do this? Right, and, and they cast lots. They leave it to chance, and it falls on what, that 23rd day of that last month. Again, pocket that. We'll come back. Verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan 
that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. How did that issue come before the king? Esther. Esther brings it before the king. So chapter 4, verse 15, uh, excuse me, verse 16, if you want to jot that down, reminds us. Here's what it says. It says, this is Esther talking, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast with me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Through fasting and taking that next step of obedience, despite the personal risk, it just so happens, right, that this once orphaned girl brings before the most powerful man on the planet the issue facing her people. Do you remember the, the coincidences that just happen in this book? How the, the orphan girl becomes the queen because the king kicks out an old queen. Do you remember all of those coincidences? Or that they aren't coincidences? And how church, none of this, that we've been walking through these past eight weeks, none of these things indeed were coincidences. Just like nothing in your life is a coincidence, right? As the, the theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, catch this, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry mine. You're hurt. Our sorrows, even our joys, our excitements, our peace, all of those things, the good and the bad, are not a coincidence. And so we remember that this dismal fate of the Jews, that they would be killed, was brought before the king, and in a dramatic turn of events, Ahasuerus had a huge course correction. What, what was it? That Haman's plan would be turned back on his own head. Right? It was really a matter of, of a day. Right? How all these things transpired almost instantly. He's kind of a fickle guy. Right? He's a really fickle guy, it feels. And we witnessed one of the great reversals of power. How Haman, from that position of power... To that decided death, and how Mordecai from that decided death to that position of power in a few mere hours. All right, let's press on. Verse 26, let's read. Verse 26 says, Therefore they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Remember that. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed 
every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Can you feel the resolve? What they faced, it says, what they faced in the matter and what had happened to them. They obligated themselves to remember these days because of the reversal of their destiny as a people. Now, as I'm reading this, like if ever there's a time, writer, for you to just blare out God's name and billboard letters, this is it. So I'm expecting to say, because of what the Jews faced in the matter, and then because of what God did for them, they celebrate these days. I'm on my edge of my seat waiting for that punctuation mark. But through inspiration of God himself, the writer does not include that. Not once does he show his face. Not once is his name, is God's name spoken or written or recorded anywhere in this book. But yet, friends, we see his fingerprints on every line, don't we? And day by day, for you and for me, as month turns into month and it just feels like dry seasons, when we don't see how God's working or we don't sense that he's really in control, guess what? Even through what some have called the dark night of the soul, even when his name is not said, he is still in control, is he not? He is still in control, guiding every little element. Men's breakfast yesterday, it was said that hindsight is 2020, at least. Right? At least it's 2020. And for you and me, as we read this story, as we read the book of Esther, we can see the undeniable, undeniable evidence that God's working in and through and around the people in the story and the circumstances and even the dates. So let's not forget that in my life, in your lives, as we remember back to God's faithfulness in the past, may we use that to remember forward that he is still large and in charge, whether or not we see him explicitly working. And so the Jews, they hold themselves accountable to always celebrate these days. Because we were about to die. And now we have life. How can we not celebrate? That's, that's the national feeling of the Jews in this situation. And so here we are. In 2022, with Christmas trees peppering every store we see. And yet, we, when you think about it, like the Jews, had faced something in the matter. And something had happened to them. How much more, church, should we, who face something in the matter because of our sin, because of our rejection 
of God and who he is and his nature faced a certain death. We faced a matter far bigger than we could ever dream. And yet God, Christ, came to die on that cross so that we may have life with him eternal, right? Because of what we face in the matter, a certain death, and what had happened to us, church, that we now have access to God himself. How much more ought we to be full of gratitude as we step into this holiday season, right? How much more? Let's not let these things of this world, which are good, many of them, but let's not let them choke out our gratitude at Thanksgiving and choke out our celebration of the incarnation as Christ came to change what we had faced in the matter. It's so easy to get lost in the details, isn't it? Um, Christmas music, right, playing this week. I was thinking of Christmas songs and angels we have heard on high. Right? This song blares across how many secular stations. And we miss the message, don't we? And not only do we Christians miss it, but the world misses it. Here, this is, uh, I think it's verse 3. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn king. We miss the details, don't we? We miss, the, excuse me, we miss the big overarching, the importance of all of this because we often get caught up, Right? So again, here's the point. As we step into holiday seasons, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. That Christ came to purchase a people, to purchase us and win them back to himself, to pay the penalty for sin. So friends, let's, let's celebrate big. What we had faced in the matter, a certain eternal death, and what had happened. Now those who are in Christ have life. Let's celebrate big this holiday season. You'll notice three times in these two verses a reference to descendants or offspring or children. So take, take note of this. Not only are the Jews saying, hey, we're going to celebrate this during our lives, but they're saying we're going to teach this to our children, that this will never fall out of practice. See the importance of teaching our children? That's why here in youth ministry, we're here to step alongside you as we point your children to this book and help them build their lives on the foundations of this book and on cultivating, Lord willing, affections for the God of this book. To teach our children one of the most precious gifts that we have teaching them the most precious gift that we have. All right, verse 29, let's press on. 29 reads, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring 
with regards to the fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So you see Esther and Mordecai are the ones commanding this um, compared to what we read in the Torah and how God had commanded certain feasts to be held. But more or less, what we just read kind of felt like a broken record, didn't it? If you're like, whoa, 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 am I reading verse 23 or am I reading verse 29? It was pretty much more of the same, except one really important phrase. It comes in verse, you catch it? It comes in verse 31. Not only are they to remember the, the celebration and the feast and the fun, but what else are they obligated to remember? Fasting and lamenting. Interesting. I don't often like to celebrate that way, do you? Next time you're, um, you're at a New Year's party and you're, you have a big lament, let me know. It's weird. <laughs> but why? Why are they obligated to fasting and to lamenting? We see it time and time again throughout the story, don't we? We see it in four, chapter 4, verse 3. When that first edict that all of the Jews were to be killed and annihilated, that that edict was received by the Jews with weeping and lamenting and fasting. We saw it again right before the queen, Queen Esther, went to King Ahasuerus. She said, fast for three days. We read that earlier. We see it time and time again throughout the book. But why? Two things. One, remember that communal fast. Remember that time when we came together to plead as our queen went forward. Two, um, a lot of commentators have said maybe the second reason why they're told to commemorate the lamenting and the fasting is even after that second edict, the one that said that the Jews can protect themselves, there was still a war to take place, wasn't there? They still had to fight. And so a lot of folks, a lot of commentators have said the second reason is that there is a war to be had. And that still wasn't all that peachy. Remember not only the good and exciting things, in other words, but remember the difficult things. Because often it's those difficult things that help us remember the joy. right? To help us feel the transition of when we first received it. So fasting right, is like spiritual reliance, if you will. Giving up something to rely on one greater. So spiritual reliance or fasting through difficult times or through lamenting. Now, fasting and lamenting aren't always together in the Bible, but frequently they are. Why is fasting and why is lamenting? Why are they often together? Well, fasting, abstaining, as we said, from food or drink or something for a period of time, for religious reasons. Why? For reliance upon God. In other words, I can't think about anything else. This thing that's facing me, this thing that's facing my family, this thing that's facing my life, this thing that's 
happening in my world around me is so evil or so big or so terrible, I just can't think about anything else. That's what lamenting is. And so the Jews are told to, to fast and remember that they had to rely. And so friends, in the same way, are lamenting our current situations and lamenting whatever it is should lead us often to fasting. If there's something you can't get off your mind, if you can't get it off your heart, may I encourage you to fast? Start with a meal. Start with skipping two meals. So half of you probably skip breakfast anyway, right? Um, skip a meal, two meals. We see it time and time again commanded that God's people ought to be a people who fast. You know how God's people ought to rely on him through fasting. Let's start in chapter 10 now. Verse 1. It says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. It's been said two things are certain in life, death and taxes. Same today in 2022 as it was in 470 before Christ. 2,500 years ago, they were still forking out taxes. And now some folks have said, uh, two ideas as to what this particular tax was. Um, it's rather fascinating to think about. Some folks think that when you read the book of Esther carefully, and you see verse chapter 2, verse 18, it says that when Esther was made queen, he got rid of the tax, right, for the, the celebration of the land. And they say, well, this is just continuing that tax that was once um, in remission. Other folks have said, well, when you consider the time, this is about five years after Esther has been queen, um, this is not exactly that continuation of a tax, but it's actually a new tax. In other words, Mordecai, this chapter 10 is about Mordecai. And they're saying uh, what these folks say um, is what's in view is how God blessed a pagan king because of a Jew, one of God's chosen people, being number two in command, right? If, if you want to, uh, to come talk about that, it's, it's super fun to think about. Um, but the point is not why the tax was levied or how it came about or what the tax is. What's happening here in chapter 10 is more or less describing a, a return to normalcy. After the, the pernicious plots, right, the seismic rev reversals and the, the huge celebrations that we've read about, there is a significant return 
to just the way things were. Now, certainly the Jews are in a better position, right? They got Mordecai there in the king's palace to, to be their advocate. So certainly things are better, but by and large, back to the mundane humdrum of everyday life. And we can't live on those mountaintops forever, can we? Humans were not made to live on mountaintops every single day of the life, of our lives. At some point in time, we're going to slip back into just the normal humdrum of everyday life. But here's the thing. On the mountaintop and in the mundane, let's be faithful. It's a matter of remaining faithful day in and day out, just continuing to obey. Now we've read, and, and we've said time and time again in this book of Esther, that Esther is not the hero. Right? We said that Mordecai is not the King Ahasuerus, the Almighty, is not the hero. Church, who is the hero of this book? It's God. But God does not need to be explicitly named to show his glory. He does not need some sort of human provision to be glorified. He is glorified and he will be glorified no matter what mankind chooses. What's it say? Either here or there, at some point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will. And if they don't cry out, I tell you the rocks are going to cry out. God does not need humans to be glorified. He's the hero. And yet in this book, despite the fact we don't hear him say anything, as he is at work. Esther and Mordecai, the exiles, are living in the Capitol building, working by the king's palace. Esther's right, made beautiful for the glory of God. The king has the big party and ends up kicking out the old queen for the glory of God. And time and time, as it unrolls through the beauty pageant and God positioning Esther in that position and positioning Mordecai and all of the peoples around to fulfill his purposes, all for the glory of God, to complete his purpose and to fulfill his promises. Not only does God do the work, but he invites you and me, like Esther and Mordecai, were used. He chooses you and me to work with him. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Right? Working with the almighty king of the universe. And how one day, um, how one day our king is going to come. Right? And it's not going to be this return to normalcy and to taxes and to so on and so forth as we read in Esther. Well, what's it going to be? When, when our king comes, it's going to be anything but normal. Amen? 
anything but normal. All of history is going to one big end, one glorious end, and it's going to be the worship of the king forever and ever. And we're going to have a pretty big celebration then, too. We're not going to have to do the lamenting and the fasting as uh, the Jews did in this time. But one eternal celebration. Daniel read for us Matthew chapter 12, um, verse 29. Write it down if you'd like, but listen to these, these words. Um, well, apparently I didn't copy it here, but it says, it says this. Or how can... Anyone plunder a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is Jesus talking. He's saying, there is an enemy out there, the prince of this age. And you can't go and plunder his kingdom, if you will. You can't plunder his goods unless he is first, unless he's first hogtied. And what Jesus is saying is, the strong man, I have come to bind the strong man. I have come to take the enemy out and bind his power so that now his kingdom, his world, may be plundered for the sake of the gospel. Now that reminds me quite a bit of, of Haman, doesn't it? How Haman, when he had that edict out there to destroy all the Jews... You can't undo that work until you take care of who? Haman. You see the parallels here? How Jesus binds the strong man, binds Satan, and how similarly in Esther, Haman was taken out before his work could be undone. So church, press on. The strong man has indeed been bound. So press on to do the work for Christ. Why? We know, at least in a spiritual sense, that we cannot fail if we step out in obedience. And so I tell you, I, I tell you, don't despair. At some point, as we've heard time and time again, the wicked will pay. So don't despair. Tuesday, less than 48 hours away, election day. I tell you whether or not your chosen candidates are voted in or out, or whether your selected party retains power or gains power, friends, don't despair. If you feel the tension starting to rise up on Wednesday morning when you first turn on the news or open the paper and you just feel the, the hair on your starting to stand up, don't despair. Why? We know, per Romans 13, that every authority is established by God, is put there by God himself. And we've seen that played out pretty well, haven't we, these past few weeks? How the almighty king Ahasuerus, in charge of the biggest empire on the planet, from India to Ethiopia, across three continents and 127 provinces. He's big time. He doesn't even have to go to pass things through Congress, right? What he says happens. When it happens, however he says. 
And yet, this mighty king, Ahasuerus, throughout the story, doesn't it seem like he's kind of the most naive person? Doesn't it just feel like he's just kind of going here and then there as if he doesn't really know what's going on? As if he doesn't know that it's the king, God himself, who's raising up kingdoms and peoples and circumstances to fulfill his purposes. Indeed, we've heard it said, Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If God can make an orphaned widow, an orphaned girl, the delight of the most powerful king, if God can create reversals of power beyond human imagination, don't despair. So don't despair. God is just as much on the throne today as he was 2,500 years ago. Amen? Now, I've told you to take note of this term poor. This celebration of the Jews is called Purim, right? What's the significance here? We actually read about it um, in verse 28 and 29. But, but catch this, poor, P-U-R, means to cast lots. In other words, you're kind of leaving it up to chance. Flip a coin, roll a dice, whatever. They're leaving it up to chance to decide the very day that the Jews are going to be killed. Now, that term poor, the celebration of the Jews, it's called Purim. The day of celebration. The celebration of what? How God had taken what was facing them, the matter that was facing them, and brought them through. They're celebrating the sovereignty of the one true king. You see the difference? The juxtaposition from chance to how they're celebrating the very opposite of it. How none of these things were just truly cast in lots. But how God was over and above and through it all. And even to this day, right, we see folks celebrating what God had done on behalf of his chosen people. And so, lastly, friends, remember, there is never a better time. There has never in history been a better time to be a believer, to be a follower of Christ. So again, do not despair for yourselves when you pull up the news. Don't despair that your children are not living in the golden years. We live one day closer to fulfilling the work God has put before each and every one of us, to fulfilling the jobs that he has ordained for us. Children, Christian, you are one day closer to your king. And so I beg you, just like Esther, be faithful with what you have been given. Be obedient to what is before you. 
and follow him no matter the cost. We saw Esther's choices, how they had implications for generations, even for you and for me. And so can your choice, and so can my choice have implications for generations. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this story, for this passage of Scripture which you have placed in your holy word so that we can see that through everything, despite the difficulties of life, that you are the king. So Lord, we pray that we will be faithful, that we will be obedient, and that we will follow you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.